Hello, and welcome to another episode of Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where health affairs editors and guests talk about health policy news and issues. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Tim Jost. Tim was our original rapid response uh, health reform blogger back when Health Affairs Forefront was Health Affairs Blog. Uh, and he handed that responsibility off to Katie Keith in 2018 after nearly nine years and more than 600 posts. Tim retired as the Robert L. Willett Family Professor of Law at the Washington and Lee University School of Law. He's the author of a casebook, Health Law, that is used widely throughout the U.S., uh, and of a treatise and horn book by the same name. He's also the author of numerous uh, books and health policy articles uh, that have been published and cited in forums uh, too numerous to mention. Tim, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks. Good to be back at Health Affairs. Well, we're glad to have you always. Uh, I want to mention uh, the Supreme Court uh, has gotten lots of attention, justifiably so, uh, because of Justice Alito's leaked opinion in the Dobbs case that would overturn Roe v. Wade and related cases like Casey in sweeping fashion, thereby ending the constitutional right of women to choose abortion. Uh, but as you and Sarah Rosenbaum describe in a Health Affairs Forefront article published this morning, uh, the court took another action on that same day of the leak, May 2nd, uh, that maybe hasn't gotten as much at attention, but uh, could also end up undoing legal rights that have been built up over a half century. Uh, could you talk a little bit uh, for our listeners about what the court did? Yeah, it took uh, certiorari, which which means it agreed to uh, review a decision in a case called Tulevsky, in which uh, a nursing home resident had sued a publicly owned nursing home uh, claiming that the nursing home had violated his rights under the Nursing Home Reform Act to be free from restraints and unlawful discharge. Um, the, uh, that decision in favor of Tulevsky was affirmed by a Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, the Fourth Circuit, but the, um, the nursing home has, has asked the Supreme Court to review it and in particular has asked the Supreme Court to throw out an entire line of cases going back really beyond Roe over a half century, holding that Medicaid recipients have in certain circumstances a right to enforce their rights under the Medicaid Act in federal court. There's another case uh, that the court is currently considering to review um, from South Carolina, the Kerr case, which raises exactly the same question. In that case, uh, the state had refused to certify Planned Parenthood as a family planning provider, and the state was sued again under the Medicaid Act by Planned Parenthood and by a recipient uh, saying that they had a right under the Medicaid statute to choose whomever they wanted to go to for Medicaid Planned Parenthood services. So that issue is squarely before the court now, whether uh, Medicaid recipients, beneficiaries, and, and also beneficiaries under many other federal state programs like the food, food assistance um, can sue in federal court to protect their rights or if they're totally dependent on state officials for whatever the state officials decide to give them. So we're talking about, uh, and I think you alluded to this, uh, Medicaid, but sort of a whole class of programs that Congress enacts under its spending clause powers, uh, but are jointly administered by the uh, federal government and the states. What's the vehicle you talked about, sort of the issue being whether uh, beneficiaries and providers as well have the uh, ability to, to sue? 
What's the vehicle that they've used to bring these suits? Well, in most instances, they've used a statute called 42 U.S.C. 1983, and it's a federal civil rights statute that was passed after the Civil War. And what it says is that if a person has his or her rights violated by a state official, uh, rights under the federal constitution or laws, uh, that individual can sue in federal court for relief to protect their federally protected rights. Let's talk a little bit about why this ability uh, to bring an action through Section 1983 uh, has been so important for beneficiaries. I mean, you know, one might think, for instance, can't the, the federal government through take an enforcement action that would force state officials to stop activities that violate the terms of a program like Medicaid? And within this or related to this, I mean, given that the Supreme Court has narrowed, as I understand it, the right of private actions in general uh, to enforce uh, Medicaid Notably, there was a case, the Armstrong case, uh, the right of beneficiaries to bring these 1983 suits seems like an exception to the general rule. Why is that exception so important? These programs are established under what's called a state plan in which the, uh, the state explains to the federal government how they intend to comply with federal law. And if they don't do that, or if the uh, federal government finds that they're violating the state plan or the federal law, the federal government can bring uh, what's called a conformity action. The problem is that those actions are brought by the government, not by recipients or providers. And, uh, the, and they're basically just an administrative action between the state and the federal government. And so they really don't do much to protect recipients' rights, particularly when you have a federal administration that is not particularly friendly to the rights of beneficiaries. The other thing is that the only real remedy the federal government has is to cut off funding for the states. Well, that doesn't help recipients. Uh, and so the Supreme Court recognized very, very early back in the 70s that the existence of a federal remedy was not sufficient to protect the rights of, uh, of individuals under the Medicaid program. The Supreme Court has also, in a couple of cases now, held that the Medicaid program itself and the spending clause itself does not create a right to sue. And so recipients are really dependent upon this long line of cases that have developed under 1983 mm -hmm. to protect their rights under Medicaid statutes and similar statutes. And I should say that about a quarter, over a quarter of uh, the population of the United States receives benefits through these programs. In, eight, in, in 2020, it was uh, 80, about 86 million and probably more now because of the expansion of the Medicaid program. So this is, this is a very significant issue. Now, we should clarify, I think, for our listeners that at least under the Supreme Court's precedence up till now, not every, I mean, program like Medicaid, there are you know, literally thousands of statutory provisions that go into that. And, and you know, to a, to a lesser extent, you know, you have a similar situation with programs like, like SNAP. Not every provision is enforceable, right, by beneficiaries through 1983? Yeah, the Supreme Court in 1987 uh, decided a case, the Blessing case, in which they established a three or three and a half part test for determining whether the law creates individual rights, because the 1983 says people can enforce their rights uh, by a lawsuit. And so the three parts are that the law is intended to benefit individuals, 
it is specific enough for the court to enforce, and it is meant to be binding on the states. And, and then there's also another provision that there mustn't be a comprehensive federal remedy that is equivalent. There have been at least 60 federal, over 60 federal appellate court cases interpreting this language, interpreting them uh, with respect to about 30 different provisions of the Medicaid statute. And uh, in, in almost all cases, they've been able to sort this out. Uh, for some things, uh, like the right to services under the early periodic uh, EPSDT program, early periodic screening and diagnosis and treatment program, the, the EPSDT program. They've held that those rights are enforceable in federal court. Um, on the other hand, there have been a number of cases that have held that providers have no right to judicial enforcement of general statutes requiring uh, states to provide adequate payment for providers. It's seemingly not a crystal clear test, but the district and appellate courts have done a very good job of sorting it out. In these cases, in, in Tlefsky and then Kerr, if the, the court takes that case, it seems like there are two ways that the if the court wants to rule against the ability uh, of the beneficiary to bring a, a 1983 action in those particular cases. There are two ways it could do it. It could certainly say that particular circumstances, the particular statutory provisions involved in the cases don't uh, carry with them the right to bring these actions. They fall into the, the category that doesn't carry a private right of action, or they could take the more radical approach of saying, uh, we're not going to allow uh, private actions through 1983 at all. They could eliminate uh, this right that beneficiaries have, and providers have had. What are I know there's some some thought that the court might be interested in taking that more radical second route. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what uh, has happened, what some of the justices have said that makes us think that that might be the case? Going back to the 1980s, there's some dicta in cases describing the Medicaid program as a contract between the federal and state government rather than as a, a, a program that creates rights. And uh, particularly Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas have uh, been quite insistent in bringing up this language. Uh, and in fact, in a case in, uh, in, in, uh, in 2015, the Armstrong case, uh, four of the justices of the Supreme Court uh, held that there was no right under the Medicaid statute and went on further to talk about the statute as a contract. That was not a majority decision. In 2018, Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch dissented from the denial of certiorari in a 1983 case, saying that the law was way too confused and that it should be cut back and discarded and that we should go back to considering Medicaid simply as a contract between the federal and state governments that recipients have no right to, to enforce, even though they are, of course, the intended beneficiaries of that contract. So it looks like uh, the, uh, that trio, uh, which is starting to show up a lot in Supreme Court cases, may have picked up another justice because it takes four to get a certain uh, petition approved, and they may have picked up another one or two. So that's where we are. Let's assume that the court does uh, decide to cut out uh, the right entirely to uh, for beneficiaries and providers to bring 1983 actions. 
is that the end of the story or is it uh, possible or how easy would it be for Congress to act uh, to restore the right, both sort of from a substantive point of view, technically, but also just politically? Well, it would be very easy for Congress to do this. All they would have to do would be to pass a statute saying that uh, Medicaid recipients and providers and, and beneficiaries and providers under other programs can sue to enforce their rights under the statute. Uh, and in fact, in the 90s, Congress did pass a law after one Supreme Court case uh, clarifying that that was the case. Uh, for some reason, the courts don't pay much attention to that law, but but I suppose they could do it again if we didn't have a Congress that is totally split and dysfunctional. That last disclaimer, unfortunately, applies to a lot of issues. Uh, mm-hmm. We're almost out of time, but I do want to ask if you could just briefly touch on uh, one more thing, which is that there seems to be just a real philosophical split uh, in terms of the vision of how we view programs like Medicaid, safety net, uh, uh, Social Security, all sorts of public programs, that philosophical difference seems to be at the heart of the legal dispute. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Prior to the 1970s, uh, welfare recipient, uh, receipt of any kind of welfare program was regarded as a privilege, not as a right, um, which is to say that the state could cut off your funds whenever they wanted to for whatever reason, subject perhaps to some state remedies. But in the 1970s, the Supreme Court recognized that when the federal statute says that you have a right to receive certain benefits, that right should be enforceable. So I think the question is, do we go back to the 19th century, the early 20th century, when welfare was sort of really frowned upon and regarded as as something that was just charity? Or should we stay with where we have been for the last half century, which is that people who are beneficiaries of public programs have rights under those programs? Well, thanks, Tim. I mean, that's a, a good place to leave it for now. We'll, we're out of time for this week. We'll, we'll watch as these cases work their way uh, through the court's processes and uh, maybe have you back uh, when we get a decision. For now, thank you uh, for joining. Uh, it was great to have you. Uh, it was a great conversation. Thanks for the invitation, Chris. And also thanks to Sarah Rosenbaum, who was actually the lead author on this post. Uh, And thanks uh, to our listeners, of course, for joining us. If you like uh, Health Affairs This Week podcast, be sure to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next week.